Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Corey. Hello and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Corey Gibson. I'm uh, here today to talk to Dr. Nick Hubble, reader in English at Brunel University London, co-director of the Brunel Centre for Contemporary Writing. Dr. Hubble has written uh, on mass observation and everyday life, on British modernism, on science fiction, on British fiction during the 1970s, 1990s and 2000s, on London and contemporary British fiction, on aging, narrative and identity. And he's currently working uh, on a project on science fiction futures of modernism. However, in the proletarian answer to the modernist question, the book Uh, We're here to talk about today, which was published with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017. Dr. Hubble seeks to recontextualize our understanding of literary modernism and proletarian literature and reveal interconnections and new emancipatory political horizons that connect those two literary movements. Hello, welcome to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network, uh, podcast network. I'm Corey Gibson, uh, one of the hosts on New Books in British Studies. And joining us today is Dr. Nick Hubble, reader in English at Brunel University London and co-director of the Brunel Centre for Contemporary Writing. And we're here to talk about Dr. Hubble's book, The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question, out with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017. So, uh, Dr. Nick Cobble, a very warm welcome to New Books in British Studies. Uh, Good morning to you, and thanks very much for having me on the podcast. No worries at all. Very much looking forward to our conversation. So, I wondered if we might kick off with just uh, a few words on uh, who you are, Nick, and how you developed your particular interests in the field and how this book came to be? Um, 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I've been thinking about that uh, actually more since I've written the book than than before I was writing it. I mean, I um, uh, I come from originally the London Borough of Bromley, which is in the southeast of Greater London. So I was born there and grew up there. Uh, and one of the statistics I like to talk about is in 1976, the year I started at my comprehensive school, Britain was, according to some social uh, some metrics, the most socially equal country in the world. Um, in terms of social mobility, the Gini coefficient of thing, even you know, more more equal than Sweden according to some metrics. And of course, now it's one of the least uh, equal countries, um, certainly in the West. Um, and there's a kind of that that political shift, uh, and and then I suppose also the way that kind of class figures in British life to the extent that everybody is kind of in some degree aware of social class i think still even in or even more so perhaps in in 2018 than 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 in periods of the 1990s when perhaps things look slightly different but um so that's the kind of factor coming into to to what i'm doing and 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 i suppose i also grew up the time i i i grew up i think i was 16 when the royal wedding of charles and diana happened and i went to a, 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 a not the royal wedding gig in Bromley, uh, kind of with, with, with punk bands and so on. So there's a kind of political edge. It's also the, the nuclear redeployment of, of the, the expansion of the deployment of nuclear weapons in Europe during the early 80s, I suppose, was a political kind of moment. And then the miners' strike, um, 1984 to 85, which I suppose re brought back a proletarian kind of conflict in Britain that was kind of reminiscent of the. Um, the 1930s and I suppose at that time I was reading things like George Orwell um I think that was probably the first the first writer from the 1930s that I really read seriously but I also read Lawrence uh at that time uh not not Lady Chatterley's Lover immediately The Sons and Lovers and um other Lawrence novels and I think that connection between what was happening then in in the eighties and what was happening in the these sort of novels of the twenties and the thirties uh, came home to me. And I think later in in, in the book, as, as we'll get onto, I kind of try and recapitulate that moment of how the reception history of proletarian literature alters in the kind of late seventies and eighties, as that because those two those two periods seem to speak to to each other. And I think that was something that that that, that stayed with me for a slightly you know, as as I went through my life, and uh, I, I I I did my degree in 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 philosophy, and then in my mid twenties, and then I moved on to writing a PhD in my thirties. Mm-hmm. And the things I was interested in were well, the PhD ended up being mainly about George Orwell and mass observation, but it was about the, the kind of late thirties uh, period. But around that, I read a lot of of, of things like Raymond Williams. Uh, but I also read novels of the period as kind of for contextual information. So I first read uh, May Day at that time by, by John Summerfield. I first read Lewis Rassett Gibbons, uh, Scott Square. Uh, I read Lewis Jones's The, the Welsh um, Mining Novels from R.D. and We Live. So I read all of these uh, books at that time. And it's, I suppose they fermented, and this, this was in the sort of uh, late 90s, 2000s, and they fermented me. Until um, I finally managed to get it all out there in uh, 2017, last year in the book. Wonderful. That's a yeah. That's a really compelling, like autobiographical 
angle, which is, of course, again, an important part of the uh, book. You do write quite often in there about autobiographic fiction. Is that the correct way to? Yes. Yeah. So one thing that occurs to me there, I know that you've also done a lot of work in in contemporary uh, fiction and in uh, a new school of literature that was emerging in the 1990s and early 2000s, just when you were dis- uh, perhaps discovering, uh, as you said, many of these texts for the first time. And perhaps when we get into the book in more detail and especially towards some of those wonderful notes in the conclusion that really bring these discussions about modernism and proletarian literature in the interwar period uh, into their own in terms of contemporary political discourse. When we get to that, perhaps we could talk about what connects and distinguishes the 30s, the 80s, and this contemporary moment in, uh, you know, since the financial collapse in 2008. Yes, I think, well, obviously that, the, the 2008 context of place has added urgency to all mm. these things. I mean, I think some of those trends, the kind of growing inequality was already there before then, but this, that was the moment when I think, you know, the, the, the veil was shattered, if you like, and, you know, you know, suddenly the start, in some ways, I suppose, like that eighties moment, another stark, re, re, you know, resurgence of, of of the kind of divisions in 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 society, which which I think are uh, structured around class, but they're also one of the things I'm trying to get at. They're also very much structured around uh, um, gender. Um, if you're looking at the thirties, and if you're looking today, I mean, obviously, also ethnicity um, and and there's a whole uh, range of you know, intersectional ways we would look at things in, you know, current uh, literary analysis that we weren't doing, uh, you know, so much back in the 80s and 90s and certainly not in, 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 in the 30s. But I think we're gradually seeing strip bare all these kind of kind of forms of, 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 of interaction. And if you go back and look at these texts in the 30s, you can find them in those texts, that, that's the thing that I think kind of fascinated me. Actually, the, some of these communist writers from the thirties turn out to be more progressive than than, than we think. <laughs> that's a, one of the great qualities of uh, of your book, I think, Nick, is that the the urgency of those uh, intersectional uh, struggles, as they were in the early twentieth century and as they are presently, comes through, and your discussion of the scholarly debates around modernism around pro- proletarian uh, literature like inflect that they don't uh stifle it you know which i think is one of the one of the risks that uh a scholar runs in recounting the kind of scholarly discourse around things you know and risking a degree of like abstraction or something yes no i think that is um it that is very much the case i mean in some ways one of the immediate um spurs if you like for me to actually get on and write this this Weld this project into some sort of publishable shape. Um, what actually came out of that kind of um, scholarly uh, discourse? Because I wrote a chapter uh, for Kristen Blumel's 2009 collection into modernism, which came also an edit for University Press book. Um, and in that, I was discussing um, particularly sort of William Empson and mass observation. Um, and issues around that. And in a review, uh, Jesse Matz reviewed the book for for Modernism Modernity, and he actually um, noted in his review of my chapter, it sets up a provocative um, relationship between modernist and proletarian literatures. Um, 
Our critical views persist in pretending at modernist ascendancy. Proletarian literature has its own claim to the sort of cultural transformation we associate with modernist ideology, but our categories reduce it to a more ordinary kind of realism. That's what he said in, in the review. So I thought, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to, um, that's exactly going to be the focus of the book. And I'm going to, you know, turn that around so that we do see uh, proletarian literature as being exactly that kind of uh, a modernist project to cultural transformation. Um, and not, and what I was trying to do was not just to sub, uh, you know, shoehorn, if you like, proletarian literature into modernism. I also wanted to shoehorn modernism into proletarian literature at the, at the same time. I didn't want to submerge one one within the other. I want to show, if, if you like, there's a kind of liberational impulse that's going across the, these works and quite often to, to, to try and achieve, I think, similar, um, similar ends. Um, and that's kind of important to me. So it's kind of, you know, re- rethinking, as it were, the literary history of the period rather than trying to just expand the canon a bit or, or, or tweak it. It's such a, a testament to the, you know, the truth that, that the scholars in our in our field have to believe. I think that literature is good to think with. That one of the the most insightful and appropriate ways to tackle these very questions is to think of these characters and their interiority next to one another. You know, it's not a comparison that you directly make in the book, but I'm struck by imagining what I don't know. Uh, Proof Rock might have to say to you in Tavendale from. Uh, from towards the end of uh, Scott's Queer trilogy. So they were someone who finds their agency in a mobilised collectivist kind of becoming history versus uh, someone who is defined by their sort of flight from social relations. Yes, I mean, I think that, that that's, a, that's a, a, a lovely way of thinking about it. And, you know, somebody needs a, a, one of these really excellent uh, writers to do that, that kind of pastiche. Uh, novel of the of, of the of the you know mashup of 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 all these uh, characters perhaps yeah no I think that is that is that gets to the to the crux of it and that actually in some ways that brings us back to that point of autobiographic fiction um, which what is actually a term from the beginning of the twentieth century I think it's from nineteen oh six or nineteen oh nine or around about the time but more recently it was resurrected by Max Saunders in his book which is called Self Impression. Uh, 2010, and he discusses it. I don't think the publisher would actually let him call the title of the book autobiographiction because it's 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 a it's a term that that that, that, that perhaps didn't have the have the recognition. But I think it deserves that that recognition because in some senses, if you're talking about the the importance of literature or the utility of literature, thinking through these kind of problems of self awareness and how you deal with society and how you uh, deal with different groups in society, I think. The argument of autobiographical fiction is that this is how these uh, writers did think through their relationships with, with, with society and also kind of discover um, their own subjectivity, um, um, you know, became agents within, within their own lives in some ways through this autobiographical fictional process, whether you're talking about Virginia Woolf or whether you're talking about D.H. Lawrence or in, in other people that I don't particularly write about in the book, but, you know, Dorothy Richardson or, or Catherine Mansfield. Um, and it's quite often the innovators were marginalised, um, you know, either, either women or working class men or lower middle class or in some other way, you know, or exiles or in some other way kind of marginalised 
by the structure. And you can see it's it it, it is a form of kind of um, cultural politics. But I think it's actually this imagining, this sort of you know constructing the self and working through as as Max also says, not just the good things about you, but 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 the kind of shameful things. In a sense, putting it all out there. Um, I mean, the last one of the last ones sort of before the war to do this was George Orwell, of course. Uh, although he he did in fact come from a, you know a, a, a much less marginalised background, but there's still that kind of subjective kind of discovery by by sort of let, letting your shirt hang out in public, as it were, metaphorically, and kind of putting all this this down. And I think it was a kind of cultural project by which people. Um, you know, discovered things and discovered things collectively by 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 reading and and talking about it. And you you can say it's a much wider democratic thing as well. Uh, if, you, if you look at the work of somebody like um, Christopher Hilliard, the, the cultural historians, to exercise our, our talents. You know, he discusses in their proletarian literature as part of a kind of wider process of, of the democratization of British society. It's basically self-reflective writing spread out. Um, um, and mass observation is another area where that happened, kind of thing that was set up basically by modernists, but encouraged people to write extensive diaries. And, uh, you know, so this way of writing, if, if you like, spreads. Um, so I think, I think there's a huge, um, I think it's, it, you know, if we're talking about the importance of literature in 2018, I think this is a period uh, that would, you know, do well to kind of focus and, and promote because you can sort of historically show. The importance of literature, as you know, in terms of kind of politics, subjectivity, and cultural um, um, democratization in, in in that kind of um, period. So I think that's all. Um, you know, that's a key way of um, a key thing that we should be doing in the discipline at the moment. Anyway, so absolutely, and there, there's of course whole whole generations um, certainly in the UK who, who uh, you know my, myself. Uh, included, I was born in the mid eighties. Uh, there's a whole generation of people who who don't have ready templates for thinking uh, in in collective terms about their political or cultural agency. Right? It's been so long established as an individualized uh, kind of discourse that returning to these literatures that belong to a period when these ideas were in the air uh, can help us find a way through. Yeah, I wonder if. Because we're really getting into the guts of the uh, the issue here. I wonder if we could pause and, and return just to the uh, title. And I know it's maybe a, a cheeky question to ask you, Nick, but I wonder if you could um, explain what the modernist question is and what the proletarian answer is. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, that <laughs> the modernist question, um, this is actually um, a... I'm taking this from Alec West, the uh, the uh, literary critic, who was the communist kind of reporting literary critic in, in the 19, late 1930s, uh, in his book Crisis and Criticism, written in 1937. Uh, and he's discussing um, modernism. He says, you know, modernism, obviously, that's the development I'm talking about, T.S. Eliot, you know, uh, primarily in the first place, is the kind of development of the time. But what it shows is the kind of one of the you know, the fundamental question of our age, when I do not know any longer who are the we to whom I belong, I do not know any longer who I am either. Uh, so for him, modernism is about recovering that identity uh, when, um, 
you know, the collective identity is, is, is not so obvious. And then he writes a whole, he says that Joyce has made a huge kind of, kind of, kind of, so that's the modernist question anyway. For him, Joyce has made a huge advance by talking about society as a whole. Um, and that allows him to be more kind of intersubjective to, to relate the relationships between different classes. But Ulysses, which is what West was talking about primarily there, is not, um, organized around as we know around the production process you know there's not there's not too much work going on there there's not the kind of factory kind of basis it's a, it's a fascinating and absorbing uh, 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 novel but it it it, it, it and, and quite quite beguiling in that respect but i mean uh, but but the, what west was arguing is that, is that work needs to be kind of um in there as well and then that's something i i I look at specifically in, um, to some extent, is it's in, in Great Granite, the final volume of Scott Square, but certainly in, in John Summerfield's May Day, which is set around a kind of factory. I think you can see that as, uh, or ironically, a book that was actually written, published a year before West. But, um, you know, he does it, 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 exactly that. It, it is like the kind of Joycean, Wolfian um, style and technique, but centered on 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 the factory so you get those so in that sense it is providing a proletarian answer to the modernist uh question and it sort of shows who the who uh individual subjectivity is found through the kind of collective which is not one i don't know solid mass just doing what the communist party tell them to do uh or, or work. but it actually turns out to be an you know intriguing interset of relationships and uh, uh that, that that kind of expresses a kind of very nuanced and, and fluid sense of identity, which is, you know, exactly why some of it was drawing on people like Wolf and Joyce. He's using using those techniques to show that identity, but also putting it within a kind of political and social context. So I think that is that, if you like, is the is the proletarian answer to the modernist question in in, in a nutshell. <laughs> I, I think it's a testament to the the quality of your your prose and the clarity of your argument that you know when it boils down to an issue of of course a politics of solidarity requires some kind of conceptualization of, of intersubjectivity you know that big buzzword of modernist uh, technique that seems in retrospect having read your book blindingly obvious to me now all of a sudden but I wonder if you could um, explain why these discourses have been so transiently separate since this period in the 1930s and why an intervention like uh, your book was required to bring these discussions back in touch with one another. This idea of modernism, of course, being a rarefied, rarefied kind of high-minded bourgeois self-absorption as opposed to uh, an, you know, the idea of a nakedly propagandistic uh, proletarian literature, which you know, draws from, I don't know, uh, 19th century social realist modes and so is outdated and can't keep up with the innovations of modernist technique. Why have, why have those two positions uh, become such a critical commonplace, do you think? Well, that is that is a, a key question, isn't it? And I think, um, I think, well, they happen very quickly. I mean, I recently, not so long ago, did some work on the 1950s, and I was very struck by um, reading at the time how vehemently the kind of, if you like, the public literary 
sphere rejects the notion of novels of, 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 of commitment. There's things by Doris Lessing, I think, writing in about 1957, saying, oh, you just can't get up and, you know, and say to people can say, you know, you're, you're operating in the terms of commitment. You know, half the audience would just walk out immediately. And, um, uh, and the, the, um, you know, at the time people, people thought that the writing of the 50s was much better than the kind of joy camp writing of the of the, the 1930s as i think it was kind of put at the at the time i mean which is a position that we've looked at now and i think many people at the moment would be more interested in the writing of the 30s than than than, than, than the 50s but at the time there was a very solid change and i think that the context of that are partly the second world war which um in a way, the proletarian—it it kind of shut down in some way. I think the, the proletarian subjectivity opening up because the it, it, both the actual war effort, which was such a significant you know strain on British society for, for, for six years, and the subsequent 1945 settlement, uh, political settlement of the Attlee government and the establishment of the welfare state. I think it shifted the. Um, Looking, people could then look back on the 1930s and say, "Look, those problems have been fixed. We don't need to worry about those concerns at the time." I think you can see that with something like Walter Greenwood's love on the on the doll. Uh, you know that part of the key element of that book is the dissatisfaction of of women with with, if you like, working class culture at the time. I mean, Sally Hardcastle has this, who's in some ways the main protagonist of that novel has this huge rant about how she's not respectable, she doesn't want to be respectable, she's not interested in these kind of kind of constraints. And, you know, famously she saves her her, her kind of family from the from the from the doll by um uh, becoming the mistress of the local bookmaker. Um and I think a novel like that could be it, it could be portrayed immediately after the war, or even even actually during the, the film version, which I think came out during the war. It could be shown this was the, the dire straits people used to be in, the steps they had to go to. You know, this won't be, you know, we don't need this in the future. You'll be able to have respectable family life um, and for the welfare state. So that was one change. I think some of the politics of that period just got diminished by the welfare state. I mean, uh, also the um, Communist Party literary kind of uh, position shifted. Um, it became much more um social realist after the war although the the actual change the the, the 1934 soviet congress which which advocated socialist realism have been in um have been before i mean it took some time before, before that actually worked through into actual practice and if you look at kind of communist writers writing and other left-wing writers in the late 30s they're not really doing that uh, they're still influenced by the modernists, but by by the time you get to the late forties, that's kind of uh, been been um, either suppressed or people are just not doing it. They're doing different things. I think those changes and the Cold War is also another context, as we know. I think uh, partly from the other direction, I suppose, in, in creating that idea of high modernism. Um, you know, we know that the the for example, later in the, in the kind of 50s, and so on, the CIA were invested in supporting, you know, the privileging of kind of abstract art uh, because it wasn't specifically concerned with, with political factors. So I think there's a range of things that happen that make that huge shift. So as, as, as you rightly say, so we stuck with 
certainly going through the 50s to 60s into the 70s, there's a notion of, of, of the high uh, modernists, uh, Elliot and Pound and uh, Joyce and Lewis. Um, and then, then there's a notice of, of, of these proletarian writers, which are now no longer even read at that period. And they gradually come back in. And I suppose it's going to sound, I mean, I don't entirely buy into a sort of kind of, uh, well, I don't think anybody perhaps buys into a kind of vulgar Marxist economic determinism. But I mean, I think, you know, that I don't think the entire uh, our world experience is entirely determined by, by purely materialist means in any way. But you can see that progression in history because in the 70s, it's exactly after the point where the kind of oil crisis and, you know, the, the collapse of the of, of, of kind of exchange rates and, and the move towards the more kind of the beginnings of kind of neoliberalism and, and, and kind of financial crisis coming in that decade, that actually attention shifts back to looking at these proletarian writers and they start, people start writing about them again in the 1970s. Um, actually, quite often, again, the first people I think to really look at them in the mid-70s were kind of communist critics, you know, in journals like, small circulation journals like Red Letters, um, um, you know, connected to, to universities. Kind of, you know, looking again at people like Lewis Jones and and um, Walter Briley and uh, you know Love on the Dole and, and these other um, novels and that's and then uh, Lawrence and Wishart kind of republished some of these novels at the end of the seventies, early eighties, and it's I think it's beautiful because that that political conjuncture had come had come back and there's suddenly an appetite to look at these uh, these novels. So then, if you like that. They, they came back a bit at, at, in, in that period. So, But you're right, I think there was still a separation. On the one hand, you had the modernist uh, kind of texts that were being treated, with, if you like, as a kind of high point of culture, and you had these um, uh, proletarian um, texts alongside. And it's been since the kind of 1980s, uh, it's been the sort of, 20, well, 28 years uh, Yes, no, yeah, 28 years since then, in which that shift has actually happened. So we get to the point where now you can discuss all these things um, together equally. And that, you know, that's quite a long, interesting kind of progression that's happened over that period as well. It's one of the, uh, bring up a fascinating point there about the critical context into which these, um, you know, your, your primary texts in this study either do or, or uh, are or are not put into sometimes depending on their uh, fluctuations in popularity, their availability in print, uh, their popularity, as you mentioned. But it, one of the striking things uh, occurred to me just as you were talking about Love on the Dole a moment ago is that, uh, and this is something you discuss in some detail in the book, that several of these texts, to put it kind of crudely, appear on both sides of this argument, if that makes sense. Like uh, Love on the Dole, as you said, the film version could be interpreted as, uh, oh my God, wasn't one things bad in the 1930s? We had to subvert traditional domestic gender roles in a working class home, but don't worry, we've sorted that out now, as opposed to your reading, uh, uh, you know, and the, and the more established popular sort of critical reading now that sees it as precisely opening up these intersectional struggles that, that you discuss in your book. Um, no, I mean, I think that is, um, I mean, obviously some of these books, there's competing, um, 
if you like, um, reception histories as well. You know that you, you you can find critics who've read books one way, and you'll find many critics who, who are reading the books the other way. And that's a um, that itself, I think, has been one of the reasons why that transition has has taken so long, so that we we, we can talk about these texts again as kind of inter inter sub intersubjective, uh, intersectional. You know, liberatory texts that are kind of part of of of, of modernism. This is a, it's um, I don't know that kind of uh, I suppose that reception uh, battle. I mean, I try and get that into the book in in in, in the introduction, and that's one thing I wasn't entirely sure about how um, how much people would necessarily want to read through a kind of chronological, my chronological history of how that might have happened. But to me, it just seems a very fascinating. Subject: the way positions shift and how you actually shift out of the kind of uh, you know what is the dominant paradigm, especially as you were operating you know if you're talking about really in a, an, an academic environment and you've got to contend with peer reviewers and colleagues and how people treat your um, work. I mean, and I had a feeling when I completed my PhD about George Orwell, massive special, but not all the stuff I was interested in was going to get an audience at that. <laughs> at that time um whereas i think what's really shifted from the modernist perspective has been the rise of the the new modernist studies since um the 1990s where modern i mean the, the kind of sort of jokey version of that is now every, everything is modernism virtually from 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 um from, from you know including you know advertisements and you know popular radio shows and you know and what have you but i mean i think that's been immensely liberating uh academically because it's allowed people to write seriously about all these cultural manifestations that make up make up the make up the present uh in a way that wasn't possible if you had to stick to just writing about um you know ezra pound or or um Virginia Woolf, much as that you know much as i appreciate the value of, of that kind of writing it's great to expand it out. And I think it's this 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 is made possible in some ways, and plus the changes, as you said, right at the beginning, the two thousand and eight shift, the political shift, and now we're suddenly in. I mean, and it's a commonplace thing to say, but who who could have predicted the kind of configuration of politics in the West in two thousand and eighteen, even five years ago? I mean, possibly one or two, you know, people very very attuned to that, but. You know, suddenly the world has reverted to to these kind of dynamics. So that suddenly we have got a critical discourse, you know, very inclusive discourse around modernism, and we've got the kind of class um, conflicts and, if you like, the political conflicts and gender conflicts of of, of the present, which actually tune back into to what these thirties, twenties, and thirties writers were writing about. So suddenly it all comes together, um, and this, you know, the, the moment. Um, I think has has actually arisen, and you can see there's a number. There have been a number of other more political takes on modernism actually published in in 2017 books, titles like Red Modernism and and um, so on. You can see there's a sense. I think there's a wider cultural sense that something shifted here, um, and 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 that's that's the moment we're I suppose we're all trying to capture and 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 work with and see where it goes. It, it also expresses uh, again. This is something you put very, very lucidly in the in the book that so many of the the writers that we consider to be high modernists were given their the sensitivity of their sort of political and cultural antennae 
they were driven in their analysis to go one way or the other ideologically. And so the kind of um, discussions around the predilection towards fascism of our most treasured uh, modernist writers uh, is is like well-trodden ground because of that. But I wonder if if this is maybe a good moment then to, to turn to some of the particular texts uh, that you go into some depth in in the book. I know in the, in the introduction and uh, uh, comes back throughout, but also in the, the conclusion to uh, your study, um, Naomi Mitchison features uh, fairly prominently. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, about how work and its reception and your use of it. Mitchison's reception, I think, is is it's well, it's it's, it's on the rise. I think in recent years, um, I don't know about the. Uh, I think certainly think outside Scotland, I don't think uh, she was a particularly. Um, Studied uh, certainly in, in you know until relatively recently the last uh, five ten years or so, uh, um, and I think she she fits in exactly in 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 that kind of new modernist studies recuperation, which also includes recuperation of, of texts that once would have been described as middle brow. I'm not sure that Mitchell. I wouldn't describe Mitchell as a middle brow, right? I mean, she's that's one reason. You know why I supported Christian Gunnell, you know, coining of that intermodernism term because you needed some sort of term at the time to think about these writers who are using techniques, but you know, also writing historical novels set in ancient Rome, in which they, in which they, you know, they, which are autobiographies as well. And Mitchison, obviously, I think, is self-evidently, you know, wrote herself into her novels. So it's typically she was like a, a, a gay Roman uh, man or. Um, or a, you know uh, um, a kind of kind of priestess in in in, in ancient Greece or, so, or these kind of structures. What the the reason I feature on on, on we have been warned her nineteen thirty five novel in in um, in the Palestinian for the women's question is because it's it's fascinating because she writes it's so evidently uh, Dione Gorton so evidently her. Um, is so evidently an autobiographiction. It's kind of structured in the current um, political context. There's a huge tour in the middle around the Soviet Union. There's discussion of her, her husband in the novel, Delay Grand as her husband would become um, in, in real life. And it's about the kind of politics. But there's also this huge section set in kind of Scotland. Um, and there's also slightly fantasy elements of kind of, 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 of witches and um, plus, plus an emphasis on gender politics and abortion and rape as well. I mean, it's 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 got everything in it in, in a huge novel, um, which got one of the most critical receptions of all time. Was cut by the publisher. Was not republished. Um, it didn't get republished when her other novels were republished by Virago in the kind of eighties and nineties. She wanted them to to, to republish it, but they wouldn't. It, it only eventually got republished in two thousand and twelve by by Kennedy and Boyd. Um, in the Naomi Mitchison um, library, um, and yet if you look at it, it looks like a 21st century text. This is one of the things that clued me to that, that that kind of comparison when I read it, because it has all the things that you would read in a 21st century kind of text. And you know, nobody would have it ha- has any problem with you know mixing politics with fantasy elements with with kind of you know. Uh, gender, which is, you know, in fact, it's incredibly ahead of its its time, and I think she realised something that she was uh, ahead of her 
her time and kind of kind of rode back from that. So for all those reasons, I think it's it's fascinating. But I think it's it's also because it's it's so it is so self aware of her relationship. And obviously, uh, Mitchison came from a you know a, a well to do upper middle class you know quasi aristocratic almost family with you know the daughter of an eminent scientist and a brother of um, uh, JBS Haldane, um, the uh, also an eminent scientist, but also the kind of leading kind of communist party public intellectual of the day. So um, there's an, and I think it shows exactly how um, I, I wanted to, in some ways I ended up, up, up including my reading of that in my introduction give the indication of what I'm talking about, how proletarian literature is not just literature written by members of the working class, which Michigan obviously wasn't. And it's not um also I wanted to, to show that it's kind of dependent on that autobiographical kind of awareness and intersubjectivity. And I think um that's what you get in that novel. Plus you get the moment where she realizes she she goes for a kind of her epiphanic moment, if you like, in that novel uh, the, the protagonist Dione is when she she suddenly realizes that she is a red. She hasn't said she's a red before, but she's giving a lift to an unemployed um, uh, driver and an unemployed man across Scotland. She's trying to explain her support for him, and he's pointing out the fact that she's driving this car and obviously a lady. And then she suddenly she says, "You know, I am a red," and um, it, it, it's not a position that's come in in in, in the novel before. And I think that I mean. I would almost certainly read that as a kind of through writing that novel also helped her, you know, to to to, to rethink, conceptualise herself in actual life. I mean, she's she's uh, she very much wears a, a a heart and her thoughts on her sleeve. She's a, a number of these writers appears who lets everything kind of hang out. And if you read through the entire, you know, work of Mitchison, you can re- re- recover all, all of that. Uh, she also wrote this huge diary, million-word diary for mass observation during the Second World War. So, the, you know, there's masses of, of, of material to, to get there. So I like the fact that it, 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 in some ways I wanted to foreground that because it's kind of, it, it's feminist, it's, 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 it indicates that this category of proletarian, which could be a much bigger, more expansive category than perhaps we're, we're, we're disposed to think of. And I think it showed how all those kind of politics came together at that period, and it's still kind of relevant today. I mean, especially the you know the relevant kind of Scotland um, post-referendum Scotland, uh, you know, um, in 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 all sorts of ways. So that 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 really um, was one reason I wanted to start with that. And because she talks is she talks specifically about factory workers, women factory workers in in the Soviet Union in the novel, which is why I've, the the front cover of the book um, has got Soviet women. Um, Workers on because when you're talking about the proletariat or the working class, you have to be careful. I think about this um, the cliched image of um, it's not just a it's not just a, a specific type of male worker, um, which is, is another thing I touch on in the book, which can be used as a kind of propaganda, not just by kind of uh, you know Stalinist regime, but also fascist regime or Indeed, the Conservative Party during uh, the 1930s, or even you know, currently there's lots of talk about hardworking families, both in, in the US and, and 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 Britain. That's a kind of unit that can be deployed for mythical and ideological uh, purposes. So I wanted to try and show foreground how you can show that 
a different representationally so that it doesn't just become a unit in those kind of um, ideological um, positionings. It really comes through in the book as well that that, that formulation isn't um, akin to a kind of old-fashioned or unreconstructed notion of um, of proletarian literature as social realism, as these characters simply having function in explaining the permutations of a particular ideology. You know, the, the examples that you give are, um, of course, the, the argument you're making has to be substantiated with incredible intricacy and nuance, because that's precisely the basis of of the argument, as it as it seems to me. And so the the prescience of uh, Naomi Mitchison's um, uh, novel, uh, We've Been Warned, as you say, really comes through in the way you write about it as well. The excitement uh, of the sort of shock of recognition uh, of so many kinds of intersectional issues that we're familiar with today, but don't necessarily align with literature of that sort and from that period. So I wonder if we could, um, what follows in the, in the first chapter of, of the book is uh, the study of Edwardian, the Edwardian pastoral, and you use uh, William Empson's uh, idea of the pastoral to give some inflection as to how you're reading the, the, prolet- uh, the idea of proletarian literature. The examples you go on to give in the book and these uh, more sustained close reading of uh, certain texts give so many different permutations of these, but that was uh, that was an early formulation that you were drawn to. Is that, am I right in, in saying that, this idea of the pastoral mapping over the proletarian? Yes. Um, I mean, it's the key. That's an idea I've, I've been thinking with ever since, struggling with, I suppose, working through since I first read Emerson's chapter, Proletarian Literature, in some versions of pastoral, which is his, his book of 1935. I mean, I read that when I was doing my PhD, and it, it I thought about it a lot in connection with mass observation at the time, but it's gone, has continued. I've thought about it in terms of proletarian literature. And I think partly because one of the, one of the points I wanted to get across in the book was the conception of proletarian literature in Britain in the, certainly in the second half of the 1930s, it, you know, was known as, as, as a literary phenomenon and it was understood not as a particular fiction. Um, as, as you said, reproducing a particular kind of socialist ideology, but more generally as fiction about the working class, involving the working class and class relations, not necessarily written um, by them. And certainly all the discussions you can read by critics in that field, people like Emerson or George Orwell, you know, they're treating it as this bigger, this bigger thing. They're not treating it as a narrow um, sort of ideological set of approved texts, if you like. So, um, that was one reason why I, I broke into uh, feature Emerson. You know, I suppose one reason, partly why I've been engaging with this topic over the years, to trying to think through that 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 essay. Um, uh, Emerson is a, a wonderfully ambiguous kind of um, think, rich and, and ambiguous thinker. You're easy to read, but um, thinking about the ramifications, you know, takes you. A, Takes you a long time to, to to work through them, and I like that kind of that kind of complexity. Um, but I think also partly because it was Orwell who, who actually said, "Oh, I think um, proletarian literature began when Ford Maddox Ford met D. H. Lawrence um, in I don't know when it was, nineteen oh seven, nineteen oh eight, sometime sometime around there." And, and 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 Ford ends up publishing Lawrence's first stories in. Um, the English Review, um, 
And according to Ford, I mean, it's all like, oh, well, you know, he advised Lawrence to, to stick, you know, really feature the mining material because that was, you know, what what made it distinctive. I mean, Ford, Ford uh, Max Ford is one of those practices with his, his memoirs and, and anecdotes always have to be treated with some slight pinch of salt because he, he deploys an autobiographical approach to, 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 his, to his own autobiography. Um, but that that is why I think he was so responsive to different kinds of writers because he he was part of that kind of liberatory kind of kind of kind of project. And I think that moment of uh, uh, meeting of Lawrence with with with, with um, Ford, and actually, there's much more that could be said about that than than, than uh, which I managed to get into in, into that chapter because I think you could uh, there's a lot of interesting political. Exchange going around in that sort of nineteen before the First World War um, that gets occluded you know, again was occluded by the focus on kind of high modernism in nineteen twenty two and 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 that, and that I mean Virginia Woolf's right in in, in that sense it really, you know the changes happen in nineteen ten um, or you know at least that's a period you can you can you can look at so I think that's a, that's a, that's one reason why I wanted to look at that and I think these these writers are and. Such as Ford, Man, it's called H.G. H. Wells. And H.G. Wells, in some ways, you could see as a proletarian writer. He wasn't a member of the industrial working class, but he was the son of uh, um, a domestic servant and uh, and a shopkeeper, originally coming from Bromley. Um, so I always feel some affinity to, to, to Wells as well for that reason. But the fact that somebody from that background could become, you know, in, in many ways, the biggest, most prominent writer in, in, in England in, in the early certainly around about in the run-up to the First World War, is itself an amazing kind of shift. Uh, and I think that Wells um, often doesn't get the kind of credit that he's due. I mean, I think that, you know, we're, there will be, I think there's works in production on Wells sort of coming forth in the literary arena that are, that are going to change our, our, our position on that. But even that was a huge shift. So, I mean, this, this, this kind of literary culture already with people like Ford, Wells, Lawrence, is in some way setting the precursor for, for kind of proletarian um, literature. And it is, I think, with a kind of, as, as I've said, with the pastoral element. If you go forward into Lady Chatterley's uh, Lover, which is, is, is where we go into the second chapter of, 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 of the book, I think you can see Lawrence working out class relations in, rela- in relation to the general strike. It's a kind of post-general strike. Novel. He he went back to um, um, Eastwood um, just after in the aftermath of the general strike, when the miners were still on 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 strike, um, and that's very much in, it, it's very much a novel that's concerned with, with with class relations. But it has, as we know, this very pastoral structure with the with the with the almost fairy tale structure with the. Um, the uh, the lady and the gamekeeper in the in in, in, the, in the kind of wood, uh, and I think that's kind of part of the of there's all sorts of ways you can think about it. it's it's a kind of a social criticism. It's about the wrongness of the time, but it's also he's also trying to imagine a future where the two of them can live together, and that's kind of how I read the three drafts of that novel. He's working through the politics of it in a way that I don't think is. Has always been brought out in, in Lawrence criticism of finding a way that these people can live together in a kind of more classless um, society. And you can even read, as I've tried to suggest, that there's a kind of more progressive gender politics to that uh, that I think, again, is, you know, that is 
I mean, Lawrence reception has been dogged in, in, in some ways by by uh, the kind of reading him of, of, of him as a kind of um, kind of institutionalized kind of sexism in some ways. Um, and if you read some of the things where Lawrence is actually writing about the novel, I think you know that I wouldn't necessarily agree with him. But in that that novel itself, it's written from the viewpoint of of the female character. So when Melor says something particularly of, of objectionable you would get her snorting with laughter or you know rejecting it you know it's not the things that men say are not necessarily the position of that novel and in fact it's an interesting it, you know it, it, it's very interesting the gender and the class politics combine make it again it's a very intersectional text i think if you, we, we can read you know profitably in the 21st century again you know i mean it, uh, going to end up saying all of these people were before their time but I mean like Mitchison again I think it's kind of ahead of its it's very ahead of its time and Lawrence also obviously understood himself as being you know misunderstood by, by his uh, it's, and I think you know justifiably so in, 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 in a number of a number of respects I think that it's that those aspects both of those writers they're writing about class relations um in, I suppose, wider kind of condition of Britain or condition of England kind of context, which is coming out of Edwardian um, period, and it's kind of moved, and it's, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's well, for example, so Lawrence was incredibly influential on the proletarian writers. I mean, the minor, if you read Walter Briley, you know, even Walter Briley's Sandwich Man, even the, the main characters describing Lawrence living in the streets, he's going in a bus journey, and he goes, he drives past the street which Lawrence was, was born in, but he, Lawrence was also influential to all of those mining writers because that was the model. You know, until that point, there weren't novels about, well, there weren't many novels anyway, put it that way. There's only not prominently known novels about the mining communities and working class miners. And suddenly, you know, they were there and they couldn't be, they couldn't be avoided. So for all sorts of reasons, I think that, that Lawrence, uh, is a kind of pre, Precursor and then contributor to the kind of proletarian literature trajectory. Hmm. I think your your discussion of the um of the drafts Lawrence had to get through to find a way of articulating that kind of utopian possibility of of a classless status, an environment where they could be together, really reminds me of something that comes up again and again in in uh, in the proletarian answer to the modernist question. Is this idea of, uh, and I might not be recalling the exact phrasing correctly, but you write often about one of these distinguishing features between an old-fashioned kind of unreconstructed idea of proletarian literature as being nakedly uh, ideological or something, and the the nuance and complexity of, 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 of high modernism being this idea of delaying just the appropriate amount, the notion of the the absolute you know, not the the, the political conundrum uh, just immediately solved by some shrewd dialectician, but a kind of delaying and revealing just a flavor, just a, a, a hint of of the possibility of uh, restructuring gender relations or uh, a classless society, what have you. I wonder if you could um, talk about that perhaps in relations to the subsequent uh, chapters three and four on on Lewis Grassett Gibbons' Grey Granite and uh, John Summerfield's May Day. Yes. Um, yeah, well, don't, don't, not bringing in the absolute too prematurely. I think that was, uh, it's William Emerson's joke about 
you know, proletarian initiative will be better aping the model of a partial because it doesn't bring in the absolute too prematurely. And um, and I think that is um, that that is what is happening in those uh, novels. I mean, certainly, I mean, Scott Square and particularly Grey Granite, the third volume, I think is it's probably the probably the best example of that in some ways because it's although as we were talking about you and uh Tavendale earlier as the, as, the, as the kind of um the, the kind of proletarian subject um and his, his obviously a, a central feature in 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 in, in great granite but it, the book the novel is um and and the trilogy overall is is kind of constructed around that final um if you like oppositional it's not quite oppositional because there's a bit of give and take in, in the final meeting with Ewan and and, 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 and his mother, Chris, um, Chris Guffrey, originally and um, um, in the novel. But the, the, in some ways, that's not. It makes the point that her surname doesn't matter, does it? Because it kind of changes throughout the throughout the novel. Um, and it's that again. It is exactly that. Uh, you know, I. It's a novel, again, that falls foul of some of this uh, reception history because it was repeatedly read as not being a good, if you like, proletarian literature in the, in the old sense, uh, or because, you know, allegedly Gibbon doesn't really understand factories, possibly doesn't understand the, the working class, and, you know, he doesn't show male working class subjectivity as he should be. But, I mean, the alternative reading of that is he is showing it and he's opening it up to, 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 to criticism. You know, he's, 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 um, he's showing its shortcomings. Um, I mean, there is a sense that Ewan will, you know, might work through this yet. I mean, he's not, not, the play, it's not the, um, depicted as irretrievably um, kind of lost to some sort of Stalinist um, kind of position. It's a, it's, a, it's a much more thoughtful balancing of... of, of of the items, but I mean, there is a, to me it, it seems obvious um, that a lot of that criticism just missed the point that the main protagonist, certainly of the trilogy as a whole, is you know a woman, uh, and and it's about her um, trajectory, and it's it, so therefore the the kind of exactly those gendered um, critique and the kind of intersectional element to it is is kind of in there. Um, Throughout the way through, and again, I mean, he—I think you can again, given he—he he deploys some of these. I mean, it's set around the land. I mean, the fe- the feature of the novel is, is, is the land rather than the urban, um, the urban centre. It has at the beginning of uh, Sunset Song. There's this this kind of very weird sort of long historical. Um, was well, not that long. It's quite short, but a historical piece going back to sort of kind of you know monsters and things in in the in the kind of you know medieval ages that comes forward. It's a, it's a kind of um, almost a folk version of kind of kind of um, class history that that's, that's kind of employed in it. And I think it's the way he he, he knits these um, frameworks together to show that there's a bigger perspective for looking at these issues than perhaps the primary. Uh, concerns of the Communist Party, for example, in the early 19, 1930s. He's trying to show a kind of wider perspective, and I think that's why it it, it, it kind of opens that up so much. And again, the ending is um, well, the, the ending of, of, of Grey Granite is much discussed in the literature. Um, um, 
whether, you know, uh, Kostraki dies or is not dead or, you know, what this means. Is it a kind of defeatism, revolutionary defeatism and, and, and so on. But I mean, I, I do uh, read it and I, I think other, other people have read it that way. There's a more kind of transformational shift. It's almost as though she's left our universe, which doesn't mean she's just dead in a materialist sense. But it, it's, it's exactly that sense of the absolute um, deferred absolute. There's a taste, there's a suggestion, if you like, of the absolute, but it's not, um, it's certainly not been brought in um, prematurely. Um, and I think that it, that that kind of, um, the pro- I mean, that, I suppose there's also a moment that, you know, obviously there's, there's endless philosophical writing about the absolute, but um, I think it's exactly these texts um, show this relationship of, of, I suppose, this kind of going beyond, if you like, getting beyond, I suppose it's, it's a kind of um, achieving a kind of subjective consciousness and agency that just puts you beyond the kind of constraints of the society you're you're in. And I think that, that you know, that that could be seen as a, a kind of typically modernist impulse, but whether you're talking about something like Virginia Woolf, but it's kind of key also to this, these proletarian uh, kind of text because it's not just about you know improving the conditions of the working class so then we need to stop worrying about these conditions or you know getting out of the class and becoming becoming middle class it's, a, it's an idea that there's some sort of wider kind of shifting consciousness available and I think that's very clear in, in Mitchison and and, and and Gibbon and you know we could have another conversation about how that how that feeds into modern Scottish consciousness but uh, um but i think it's also that, that that's something that that happens in the in these texts of kind of transformational um moments which is not suggested i mean that's that's the kind of key thing and i think in some ways that it, it, the, the literature is a better exploration of that it, i think it makes more sense to people if they're reading that text and identifying with that um protagonist um i think that in some senses, the natural mode of, of of dispersing those kind of ideas. So that's also, I suppose, something I'm trying to get across in the book. It's interesting that tension, you know, given how radical and kind of distant those uh, emancipatory horizons at the, the end of the Scots Queer trilogy are. Um, it's interesting that that's that. Transcendence, that glimmer of the absolute, has to have gone through the sort of crucible of uh, of social struggles for emancipation that, that follow Chris through that trilogy. And I wonder if that's maybe uh, that tension is, is will provide us with a good segue to to John Summerfield's May Day. Yes, um, no, I think it is the, the um, that was obviously the key issue: the social struggle, the relationship of the social struggle to the um, to the individual trans- transcendence, which is not, I think it is also kind of intersubjective transcendence. I mean, as a final point I'm given, I mean, the, his use of the, the second person um, you is um, a kind of a collective uh, or, you know, at least an inclusive uh, way of kind, of kind of expressing these ideas. Um, and that does actually take us very, I mean, well, actually, into Summerfield, because what Summerfield does is 
I mean, May Day, for those who haven't read it, although it's three days, but it's unlike the one day of Mrs. Dalloway. It's kind of like Mrs. Dalloway, but set around um, a factory. So uh, it uses some of the same devices. I mean, there's a bit of Dos Patos in there as well, but it, uh, uh, but it uses some of the same devices, such as, uh, you know, different groups of people seeing the same aeroplane, you know, provide the kind of, obviously it's cinematic, both types of cinematically influence in that sense of, of, of the kind of cutting kind of possibility. Um, and it structures this around um, the factory. So the struggle of the factory is is, is kind of central. Um, and the struggle actually in the text actually starts with the women workers in the factory because a, 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 a woman's hair gets injured in the machine and it's they who lead the de- deputation to the to the union and and and, and, the, and the struggle builds out in that way. But interestingly, also the, the only vision the visions of the future in that novel, which are not um, so transcendental. So Summerfield is also another way of thinking about how this tradition feeds back into some aspects of what became the kind of post-war um, welfare state. Um, but some of the, the view the view of the future that's given in that book is is, is, is the woman Martine, who's the who's the um, the wife of, of of one of the. It's a bit difficult to talk about central characters in in May Day because there's about over a hundred, I think, names. <laughs> Characters, and we don't spend. You know, some of them feature a bit more, but the, the two brothers who are who are among the sort of half a dozen more prominent uh, characters. One of them is, is, is John, I think, and it's Martine is his wife, and she, to be fair, is also one of the, the more prominently featured characters in the novel. And it's her kind of imagination, and she wants something to be a bit a bit better, a nicer stuff. It's her kind of domestic imagination of a better future, which is also. Um, a, a kind of a, a implicitly a more expansive, emancipated future as well that kind of drives the, the novel kind of materialistly. I mean, Sunfield was, was a member of the party. Um, he wrote this just before going off to, to, to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, suddenly he wrote, a, for example, obvious propaganda novel, Trouble in Port, Port Street, which I also discuss in the book, which is, you know, that organisationalised version of organised a rent strike, you know. So he... he, he, he he was involved in the day-to-day political struggle, and this element is in is in the novel, kind of working relations. But it, it's also the extent to which it goes on the, the kind of consciousness, particularly of the women workers, and how they interact with the, with the consciousness of other workers in the novel, and also into uh, the family who own the uh, factory. So you do get up into a kind of more uh, Mrs. Dalloway-like um Moments, even even the cook, the cook is falling asleep, thinking that tomorrow she's going to make. I can't remember what it is. She's going to make a cake or something. But it's almost like a direct uh, Mrs. Dalloway, kind uh, of kind of quite a, 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 an affectionate pastiche almost of of, of Wolf. So it puts all these elements um, together, and I think in in, in in to make the point that it's a kind of shift, a collective shift of consciousness in in London. It's it. The ending point of the novel is everyone is everyone is agreed on the need for a big change, um, but um, it's not because of the way he individualizes it. He, it basically is, I mean, you know, it's an it's an autobiographiction of London in some way, um, with a kind of this intersubjective intersectional element. It, it's not, it can't be reduced to that kind of propagandistic um, line, and there's there's a kind of sense that everybody. Could experience that kind of emancipatory um, 
moment um, or that potential. And I think that that's what it's about and why it works. Why it's such a, I think in some ways it's a key, it's a key proletarian answer to that one. This one of one of the writers who's probably most engaged with modernist writers and, and, and writing something of that kind. Um, I also think it, it captures that moment, it captures an actual historical moment where women workers were becoming more important. I mean, the 30s was actually the period where more women started working in industrial kind of occupations and as domestic servants. That shift, you know, which had been the primary employer. Um, it was in the aftermath of the general strike 1926 where, if you like, the, the working, the male working class had been defeated. Uh, and also, another context would be the 1928 equal franchise vote where, you know, women got the vote to 21, as, as, which hadn't been the original position in 1918. So the, the, the franchise had been equal. That shift meant, meant women were suddenly political agents. Unions were actually actively recruiting women, somebody like the, the people like the Transport and General Workers Union. You know, there were women pages in the union publications. Women workers actually led the, the kind of agitation for the kind of uh, holiday, um, paid holiday, at which I think came in sort of sometime in the period 1938 or something. So it actually captures a, a real um, moment of that kind of activity. So uh, which he relates to, I think, if you like, the emancipatory kind of awareness of, of modernism. And I think that's why it's an interesting. It's an interesting book. It's a, it, it, it's a bit crude to say it's it's Virginia Woolf applied to proletarian literature, but in some ways you can see you can see that inspiration um, motivating it. And I think it actually, in some ways, I think it that carries on. Summerfield still has some the logic of that has some purchase in in the post-war kind of period. You can see it all the way. I think I actually suggest you can see it all going up the way uh, the kind of working class. Uh, women workers, for example, um, at the end of the 60s in, in, in the strike at Paul Dagenham, um, which actually led to the Equal Pay Act. You can see the, there's a direct line going back to the politics of the 30s that resulted in that, that kind of fundamental moment of equality, uh, which, which happened, you know, in the 1970s. And, you know, you can see the film made in Dagenham, which in 2010, you can see it's a very late work of proletarian literature. In that's in that's in some ways the, the, I think it's films that actually you may see stuff that looks directly like some of those texts of the thirty things like Made in, in Dagenham and Pride, uh, the, the film about the minor strike and um, other examples like that. You can still see that there's a kind of cultural um, continuity that comes through from from these thirties texts in those um, that you know that doesn't necessarily come through. Um, Elsewhere, so it's a slightly it's it's it's. I think it shows that it's it's just, it's it becomes more complicated um, in that sense. And you can see how something like Summerfield can fit more into the post-war paradigm in a way that the other texts, mind you, not that not that Mayday was particularly mm. read in the post-war. I, it doesn't get republished. It's um. So it's not again into this notion of the the, the real material struggles and and, and victories right. of. Uh, of uh, emancipatory political agitation throughout the 20th century is a, is a nice um, point uh, to turn to your fifth and, and final chapter because it begins as you're saying uh, Summerfield's May Day is uh, a kind of proletarian 
Mrs. Dalloway, your fifth chapter begins with um, Virginia Woolf responding to uh, criticisms, uh, you know, that are, are fairly familiar to us of her being an elitist and her work uh, being elitist. And that chapter is titled Outsider Observations. And I just wanted to, to, to let you know how, how much I love that formulation towards the end of the book, because precisely one of the problems you described is, uh, in, in such thrilling detail is this idea that, uh, of course, the, mo- the high modernists were allowed, are permitted to have been influenced by mass culture, by the, the culture and uh, cultural and political implications of like enfranchisement and what have you. But proletarian writers were not, according to a sort of classic discourse, uh, permitted to be influenced by high modernism, right? That it's like a one-way valve or something. So you're, you're putting Wolf uh, and a selection of other uh, major writers on the outside of your discussion is a lovely inversion of, of that problem, I think. I wonder if you could talk a little about that final section. Yes. Um, it, well, it is, it, I suppose in, in, in that session, what I'm trying to get at is to come at, again, the kind of centrality of these concerns to modernism. It's not just, I'm not just trying to, um, I mean, there was some discussion originally with the publisher whether the book should be called Predatorian Literature and Modernism or, um, or, or, or this title, which I'd proposed originally, but fortunately, you know, I've been advised to stick to stick with the title. So I stuck with it. But also, I didn't want the and um, relation. So I've devoted a certain amount of time in the book to trying to argue that proletarian literature is modernist, it, you know, in some sense, with, 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 with Gibbon and Summerfield and, 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 and Mitchison as well. But I also wanted to, and, you know, also other people get, I discussed in less detail, but they're in there, like James Bark and so on. Um, but also, um, I wanted to show that modernist literature <laughs> is in some way proletarian, um, which is why I wanted to, to, to discuss Virginia Woolf again. I mean, I did discuss her a bit in the Edwardian uh, chapter as well, I think. And, and um, But I wanted to, to come back exactly to that, where she argues uh, exactly that, you know, actually, you know, she, she's done all the teaching for the WEA. She, she also didn't have... You know X, Y, and Z advantages. I really like that. I, I, I like that 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 defence uh, that, that she makes, and also she talks about this. And then I go on to discuss her interaction with the Women's Cooperative Guild and and and, and the introductory letter um, she wrote to the, that sort of 1930 anthology of of, of, of memoirs of members of the, of the Women's um, Cooperative Guild. And it's kind of she does. Do those, you know, she says, she sort of imagines getting the bath ready for the, the minor, you know, her mining husband. And it is a kind of exercise in um, proletarian literature. Actually, comes very close, I think, in some ways to, I don't think that you can say there's a difference between her, although she's, it, it's, it's kind of metafictional, she's obviously doing it in, in, in an introduction, she's aware of what she's doing and, she, and she's kind of discussing it um, and, and the problems of it. But I don't think it's so different to the way that some writers were were, were, were actually writing. So, for example, Ethel Carney Holdsworth, uh, a, a work class writer, writing, I mean, her final book, This Slavery, starts the long period with, 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 with the three women in a kitchen Kind of talking, and it's a very you know they're having a very sophisticated you know political wide ranging 
kind of conversation. And I don't think there's anything really structurally different in what these kind of writers are are doing. And that's what I was trying to show with 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 with, with Wolf that you know it's not just that we can look at proletarian literature as modernist. We can also look at sort of sort of modernist things as part of this kind of proletarian emancipatory kind of drive. I mean, why else is Wolf writing this introductory letter to these women's? Um, but I mean, she comes to the conclusion that, you know, the key thing is they had a room, the cooperative guild built them and they could meet and talk. So that kind of ties into her kind of room of her own um, argument. And then it also goes on to, 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 to re, I take this forward to three dinners, which again is a kind of, is an emancipatory utopian uh, vision. It's kind of grounded in, in different women's experience and the letters that were wrote. Uh, you know, received from women writers, including working class women, who she then, uh, you know, goes on to have an extended kind of correspondence with. So there is that. I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's different to the kind of cliched, stereotypical Virginia um, that, that, that that we're given, and it shows those concerns. They are. I think they, they stem from that autobiographical impulse. You know, if you want to write about yourself. To really explore yourself, you have to explore kind of intersubjective relations and the intersectional relations, and that's not just with people, you know, in, in your own class. It's with, you know, also with, you know, all, the, all the, the masses when you're in the streets outside the cinema, or you know, the the, the servants, or, or or you know, workers, or people that you end up kind of um, publishing with the Hogarth Press or whatever. I think she's in in the same space. As the kind of proletarian writers, and I wanted to show that she is part of that space, as is, you know, George Orwell and and, and Mitchison, who again I've sort of come back to in in, in, in that chapter. Mitchison actually wrote to um, uh, Virginia Woolf after Free Guineas. Hers is one of the kind of Free Guineas letters, and I just think that's that's kind of that interesting um, kind of connection uh, with, 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 with two people who. who Although they wrote differently, are carrying out similar autobiographical projects, which actually align them with with, with wider, um, you know, beyond their own kind of class area to a wider kind of political projects. And you know, I'm trying to get that paradigm out there as much with the book as it's not just about uh, re- reviving certain proletarian texts. It's definitely trying to make that argument as well that actually. We, I think we've come uh, full circle by connecting Mitchison to 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 Wolf. <laughs> there, yeah. The uh, uh, there's the famous uh, Wolf essay, Modern Fiction, of course, that describes the you know the the net of modern fiction not being free standing, but being connected uh, to social and material contexts. If you like, when you try to tug it free, I wonder if that's uh, perhaps a nice note to. To end a discussion of the the book on, I, I do want to return just briefly to this. Uh, some lovely moments in the in the conclusion to your book, you really do recontextualize uh, lots of this discussion in light of um, contributions to contemporary political analysis, um, and you know what readers, uh, writers, students of uh, of literature, um, how they perhaps can apply the lessons of these texts to our contemporary context, just as the neoliberal consensus crumbles all around us. But um, 
I think we've taken up uh, perhaps enough of your time. If you had any thoughts on that, I'd love to, to hear them. And then perhaps you might tell us what you're currently working on before we, uh, we close up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, partly with, with the contemporary thing, while I was writing, I mean, um, while I was finishing up writing, uh, writing the conclusion, actually, Trump got elected. So that provides one, <laughs> one kind of con- And I've just been at the Modernist Studies Association uh, annual conference in Pasadena and actually started with the election. And obviously that put a, a kind of, uh, obviously, you know, American academics obviously very concerned about that situation, well, as, as you know, possibly everybody else as well. Um, so that, that did give a certain heightened context. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, in some ways there, the discussion was, what is the history of, of you know, and where's modernism going? And I suppose one of my, the argument I wanted to make, well, I think modernism needs to move to look at, you know, being, focusing on this more political, intersectional, inter, you know, uh, subjective kind of, kind of focus. I think the, the, the inclusive expansionist, you know, period of the last 20 years has been great. But it's probably reaching, it's reaching the position where it's going to start splitting. And what we don't want to end up is splitting back to a more, uh, you know, refined, uh, if you like, or high modernist or, uh, limited, uh, kind of vision of, of modernism. And I think, you know, it, it, it would be naive to imagine that, that there's not going to be some impulse in that direction happening, you know, that there's, there's, there's we're in a very kind of fluid political, Position and there's a certain amount of counter-revolutionary acts, well, just going on in everyday life in politics, you know, around the world. So, I don't think we should be surprised if we end up with something like a more, you know, a kind of active masculine version of kind of subjectivity, you know, being pushed for in 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 some area. So, I'm trying to suggest that we need to, you know, kind of organise and and shift against that, which is, you know, a, you know, one prime argument for looking again at these texts and you know rethinking that literary um rethinking that literary history um i mean going forward um i've got a couple of um projects um one i'm just beginning which is about called uh, i've just got a small research grant from the british academy for a project called understanding social change through autobiographical narrative uh, where I'm going to be looking at material from the Burnett Archive of Working Class Autobiography, which is actually held at my university, Brunel University, but also Mass Observation. And that would be about how self-reflexivity of narratives fits in with kind of social change and how structures of feeling evolve and social values emerge and so on. But I want to tie that in uh as I get onward into a sense of autobiographiction. So I, will, I want to expand the net just from autobiography. That's why I call it autobiographical narratives, give myself a bit of space. Um, and to look at, you know, it, it, exactly the kind of text that I've been looking at in the proletarian answer to the modernist question. Let's just look at them more in a more rooted kind of political, social context. There's a kind of more, more, slightly more sociological dynamic to that project. That's where I want to go. Um, but before that's fully underway, um, I'm finishing a book, which in some ways is, is a kind of sequel to the proletarian answer to the modernist question um, in, in a tangential direction. It's called The Science Fiction Futures of Modernism from Virginia Woolf to 21st Century Feminist Speculative Fiction. Um, and that is about 
in some ways, the argument is if modernism was the, was, was the literature of intersubjectivity and social change in the early 20th century, it's now kind of speculative fiction of, you know, in some cases, quite overt fantasy or science fiction, or in other cases, more kind of slipstreamy and, 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 and speculative. But that is the, the, the 21st century equivalent, if you like, of, um, of modernism. So, and I'm kind of hanging that partly on, on, on Virginia Woolf's discussion of the room with one's own, you know, which she says in a hundred years' time will have a kind of women's fiction. And, and the actual example she gives, she comes up with this example of a uh, what's it, you know, Life's Adventure by Mary Carmichael. She gives this example, which is actually kind of referring to Marie Stokes, I think, but it, it's, it's a kind of um, Chloe and Olivia share elaborate laboratory together. And then she imagines how, you know, this would be a literature in a hundred years, years of time. And, and what I want to do is try and bring that kind of political impulse from, from the proletarian arts to the modern discussion, but trace it through a number of, of, of writers coming up to the present. Um, people like Nicholson, again, will feature, but also Doris Lessing, but also sort of, uh, you know, science fiction writers, Joanna Ross, Octavia Butler. Um, how we get to, to a kind of 21st century thing where the kind of, well, what it, we were talking about I was saying earlier, we, we, we have been warned by, by, by Naomi Mitchison, which could have been the 21st century novel. Why, you know, why we're in a situation now in the 21st century where that kind of range of themes of that is seen as kind of acceptable and mainstream and not some, you know, complete shock to the system that has to be centered and criticized. So it's that kind of shift I'm exploring. I mean, basically, you walk, walk 100 years from, from 1929 or 1928 when she was writing it was only 10 years off you know so so um i think i and in some ways i think it's a very you know insightful book i think those insightful idea those changes that have happened are happening as she's laying out and it's a kind of continuation in some ways of of, of the gender element of of, of protein answer to the modernist question kind of sort of suggest that that is actually happening in 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 literature and you know that I don't know, the political situation is not just a bad one. You know, there is a goal in, 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 in sight. You know, one of the reasons there's a count, you know, you get counter revolutionary movements is because there is actually a revolutionary impulse kind of ongoing. And I think we sometimes lose the picture of that in the kind of current political context. Hmm. That sounds like another fascinating and, and really timely intervention, uh, in the discipline, Nick. Um, and perhaps, Perhaps when the time comes, uh, you'll come back and talk to us about it. I'd love to. <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted to. I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, New Books in British Studies. Um, Corey Gibson, this is New Books uh, in British Studies. I think that's about all we have time for at the minute. We're part of the New Books Network, um, and I've been speaking to Dr. Nick Hubble about his book, The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question, out with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017. Thank you very much, Nick. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.